0: Welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast, your monthly source for conversations and curated content to improve your law practice with your host, Rocky Deer.
1: Hi, and welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast. You know, I remember the good old days, back when a term like Bitcoin would have meant what was left in my pocket after buying organic milk. In modern parlance, however, Bitcoin is just one example of something called cryptocurrency. What is a cryptocurrency? I still don't know, honestly. And thankfully, I don't have to know for present purposes. What I do know, though, is that one of the largest cryptocurrency exchanges called FTX has imploded. It's all over the news. And as a means to avoid the crypt, okay, don't look at me like that, okay? The joke was right there. It would have been negligent not to take it, okay? But in a means to avoid the crypt, FTX and several of its affiliates have filed for bankruptcy. Now, I've been a lawyer for over 20 years, and I I realized that I still don't completely understand the ins and outs of bankruptcy and that labyrinth known as the Federal Bankruptcy Code. I've always been satisfied to leave bankruptcy to bankruptcy lawyers, but this whole FTX thing got me thinking. What do muggles like me need to know about bankruptcy? And are there hidden features of the bankruptcy code that ordinary mortals don't know about? Serendipity shined upon this podcast when we were contacted by the Young Lawyers Committee of the State Bar of Texas Bankruptcy Section. They want to know why we don't talk much about bankruptcy. And I want to know why I don't know much about bankruptcy. And so, now here we are. To help give us an overview of bankruptcy practice and some lawyer life hacks hidden within that practice, we have two bright bankruptcy stars Catherine Curtis has practiced bankruptcy law for the past 12 years after graduating in 2010 from Texas Wesleyan School of Law, which is now Texas A&M School of Law. She was magna cum laude and on the Law Review, which deems her overqualified, frankly, to be talking to me, but let's just leave that one alone. Catherine is also a mediator, working tirelessly to resolve disputes between her two children. Catherine majored in medieval warfare at UT Austin. So I'm thinking her dispute resolution tactics might make for a unique dinner and tournament style restaurant. And then we have Robert Van Hemelrich. He graduated from the Moritz College of Law at Ohio State University in 2006. In the years since, Robert has handled over 5,000 Chapter 13 and Chapter 7 bankruptcy cases in the Western District of Texas. Bankruptcy is certainly its own animal, but outside of his practice, Robert attends to a variety of other animals including a four-month-old female pit bull named Lily, his latest adoption from the Alamo City Pit Bull Rescue. So Catherine and Robert, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you. Great to be here. Great to be here. So let's kind of start with an overview. So Catherine, maybe you can get us started, started off. What are the various forms of bankruptcy and how do they differ from each other? There's all these chapters. And I, I kind of know in a sense, but then I really don't. So what are they and how do they work?
2: There are different chapters of bankruptcy based on what a debtor wants to do. There are reorganization chapters of bankruptcy, like Chapter 13 and Chapter 11, that allow a debtor to restructure certain debts over a period of time and continue operating and stay in control of their assets. Then there's Chapter 7, which is what most people think of as just straight bankruptcy, in and out, for no-asset cases. That can usually be four to six months, And there are, you know, Chapter 12 bankruptcies that allow farmers and fishermen to reorganize. Uh, Chapter 15 is uh, for cross-border insolvency matters. So that's just a very high-level general overview of the different chapters. There's a lot of nuance that can happen, particularly in Chapter 11, um, but that's a, a general overview.
1: So, Robert, when we say reorganization... All right. So to me, whenever I remember before I became a lawyer, to me, bankruptcy always meant you don't have any money left. And, you know, you're just, you're saying, look, I'm broke, but reorganization is different. So can you explain what, and I think Catherine said that was chapters 11 and 13 are the reorganization chapters. So what does that mean for, for somebody who is entering bankruptcy
3: court as a debtor? Yeah. So the way that I break it down is this, I divide the types of bankruptcy in the two classes, you have chapter seven, which is a liquidation bankruptcy. There are no payments inside of that bankruptcy to your creditors other than by liquidating. In my case, since I represent consumers, non-exempt assets. And then I put all the other kit, other types of bankruptcy as reorganization repayment types. The way I break it down is if somebody is current on their house, current on their car, things that are important to them, IRS, child support, then we're probably looking at a Chapter 7 because we just need to eliminate debt. On the other hand, if the inverse is the case where they are behind on their house, IRS, child support, uh, then we're looking at, in my practice, would be a Chapter 13 or a Chapter 11. And then for companies, it's basically the same thing. If the company is better off dead, not worth saving than Chapter 7, but if it's, say, General Motors, then it would be Chapter 11 because it's worth more alive.
1: You know, offhand to the untrained eye, it sounds like, oh, I could just declare bankruptcy anytime my debts are getting a little too high. What are the drawbacks to to declaring bankruptcy? And I'm sure I'm sure they exist, but for those who aren't aware, what would be some of those drawbacks? So, Catherine, you want to kind of walk through a couple of those?
2: Sure. Um, I'm a panel trustee. So in my normal bankruptcy practice, I'm the person that gets appointed to liquidate. Uh, somebody's non-exempt assets or non-protected assets in a Chapter 7. So if you file, for example, Chapter 7 as an individual, you have to qualify uh, based on your income. Uh, If you have mostly consumer Uh or personal debt, you also have filing bankruptcy can impact, you know, your credit worthiness and stays on your credit report for up to 10 years. Creditors can take that into account when they decide whether to loan you money and it can impact the interest rate that you get and other other things. So if you file bankruptcy, you, especially as an individual, but any debtor, has a responsibility to fully and accurately list all of their assets, all of their debts, list any transfers that have happened in a certain period of time prior to bankruptcy. A trustee can come in, in some cases, and claw back any transfers that have been made within, you know, a four-year period of time. And there's a lot to consider, and there's limits in the bankruptcy code on how often you can be eligible for a discharge in bankruptcy as an individual. Corporations don't get a discharge. Uh, individuals do, is, is a general rule. So, you know, but you have to comply with all the requirements under the code, file all the things you need to file, go to the meetings, file your you know, credit counseling and financial management course certificates, which are separate requirements that Robert, you know, is probably very familiar with having a, a consumer practice. So if you have, in a Chapter 7, gotten a discharge in a case filed in the previous eight years, you're not going to be able to get one again, you know, within that time period in a Chapter 7 case. And there are other deadlines based on other chapters you may have filed within that time frame. So it's definitely not just Oh, I want to go down to the courthouse and check a box yeah. and I I can file bankruptcy. There's a lot to consider and you should definitely get the advice of an experienced bankruptcy lawyer before you do that.
1: Catherine, you said you're you're a trustee which I think maybe for a non-lawyer is kind of like kind of like a referee. You're trying to make sure that that everything is being done fairly and above board between the debtor and those and the creditors to whom that debtor owes debts. Is that a pretty fair is that a fair analogy in the outside world?
2: I think so. Basically, my job is to take assets that are, I'm going to say, non-protected, non-exempt under the mm-hmm. law and take those assets, liquidate them for the benefit of creditors. And there is an order of priority of payment that is set out in the Bankruptcy Code. Mm-hmm. You look at sections 507 of the Bankruptcy Code, for example, that says what are priority Payments or priority classes of creditors, rather, and who gets paid in what order. OK, uh, general unsecured creditors, unfortunately or unfortunately, are at the bottom of that pile. So if you're looking at bankruptcy from the outside in on the creditor side, you have to know what class of, of creditor you are, oh. or your client is, mm-hmm. to determine you know, where they fit in the scheme of priority in who's going to get paid.
1: Right. Now let's Robert, let's walk through the bankruptcy court process. You know, from, from day one, like Catherine said, you're not just checking a box. There's there's far more to it than that. So and, and I know it's different from, from other civil courts in a few fairly significant ways. So can you walk us through that process? If you're a debtor and you're looking for bankruptcy protection.
3: Okay. So if you're a debtor and you're looking for bankruptcy protection, the first thing you're gonna do is determine what kind of chapter I'm gonna file. And like I said, in my case, it's chapter seven, chapter thirteen. If you're filing a seven, it's because you only need to eliminate debts. If you're filing a chapter 13, it's normally because you're going to try to buy some time to catch up house, catch up car, pay IRS, pay child support, and pay what you can on your general unsecured debts, credit cards, medical bills. The bankruptcy code requires that you take a class, so you're eligible to file. And then once, and then we file the case electronically. And about a month after the case is filed, you'll attend a creditors meeting after COVID here, they just do them over the phone. And you'll sure. have a trustee uh, like uh, Catherine, who will look at your assets and determine you know, uh, you know know what's exempt, what's not exempt, what do you get to keep. And then if it's a chapter seven, that's pretty much it. You just wait two months after that, you got your discharge. But if it's a chapter 13, you have a three to five year repayment plan. You have to get the plan confirmed. Same thing as a chapter 11, you have a plan that, that proposes, I'm gonna pay these creditors, I'm not gonna pay these. And you have to get that confirmed by the court.
1: But now when you go in, you know, a lot of us, a lot of us non-bankruptcy practitioners, you know, we hear about, we hear about the bankruptcy stay that oftentimes occurs, especially if, if parties are already in litigation. So how does the bankruptcy stay work and, you know, what's its purpose? So, you know, I don't know, Robert, do you deal a lot with that or is that more of a Catherine question?
3: Uh, yes, uh, the bankruptcy stay is there to, as the name says, it's, uh, it's an automatic stay. So upon the filing of the bankruptcy, there's a stay. Uh, there are some exceptions, like if you have filed too many cases and they got dismissed recently, you'll have to get a stay imposed. But normally, you have an automatic stay. So if somebody calls me up and says my house is up for foreclosure next week and I owe thirty grand, then we file the bankruptcy and that stops the foreclosure. It stays all collection attempts, with the exception of like child support, ongoing child support. So that is one of the primary benefits. You know, If you're getting sued, if somebody has frozen, your IRS has frozen your bank accounts, you need to get those things released so you will use the automatic stay to do that.
1: And how long does that stay last for?
3: It'll last for the pendency of the case, but a creditor could come into, into the court and say, I want to lift the stay. And that's because either they're not getting adequate, adequate protection if they're a secure creditor, or they want to liquidate an asset, which could be like litigation. So they were being, my client was being sued. They would like to go back to state court or federal district court and continue the lawsuit over there, and not do it in the bankruptcy court.
1: Okay, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I was, I, I was expecting my my eyes to glaze over when talking about bankruptcy, but you guys have made this very interesting. There, it's, there's actually a lot of moving parts to this. We're going to talk more about that when we come back from a quick word from our sponsor. The Texas Lawyers Assistance Program provides confidential help for Texas lawyers, law students, and judges who have problems with substance use and mental health issues. TLAP offers 24/7 confidential support and can connect you to peers and providers for assistance. TLAP can also connect you to the Sheeran Crowley Lawyer Wellness Trust, which provides financial help to Texas lawyers, law students, and judges who need treatment for substance use, depression, and other mental health issues, but can't afford to pay for services. Call or text TLAP anytime at 1-800. 343-8527. And we're back and we are talking about all things bankruptcy. So, Catherine Robert, now that we're back, you know, one of the questions that that arises, and I kind of wanted to put this out there for maybe some of the law students who might be tuning in. You know, first of all, what got you interested in bankruptcy practice? You know, you're in law school, you're sampling everything. There's corporate M&As, there's family law, there's general litigation, there's all this... Something about bankruptcy must have stood out to the both of you that made you decide to get into it. So, Catherine, let's start with you.
2: I grew up with both of my parents involved in the bankruptcy world as bankruptcy professionals. My dad was a trustee, and my mom was a a consumer bankruptcy practitioner. And when I got to law school and I took the class, I really connected with it. It's a very code-based practice. You're always looking at the statute and the rule So there's always somewhere you can look that addresses what you need to do. It was like falling in love for me. I really enjoy it. I love what I do every day. As a trustee, especially, you know, every case is different. Every case is a puzzle. I get debtors from all different kinds of industries. And so it really keeps my mind engaged. uh, And I learn something new every day
1: there's a multidisciplinary aspect to it too. I mean, it, it, from from everything I've been able to gather from from my friends and colleagues who are in bankruptcy practice, you have to know a little bit about everything. You can't just you can't just be focused on bankruptcy. You kind of have to know things outside of that. Would you say that's is, is that an accurate impression on my part?
2: I think so because bankruptcy with respect to particularly the automatic stay that you referenced, when a bankruptcy is filed, it's like the castle gates coming down to protect the inhabitants of the castle from the warriors (laughs) on the outside, right? It is protecting the debtor from whatever collection actions or other litigation is occurring that drove them into bankruptcy to give them that breathing space to be able to reorganize or liquidate or do what they need to do in in the bankruptcy. So uh, bankruptcy touches so many areas of law. You get to see... Uh, you know, employment issues, uh, general litigation issues, lots of different kinds of issues, and so that's what makes it really interesting. I think.
1: I think it's also interesting that you used the the drawbridge and castle analogy, given that you were a medieval warfare. Major, so it's 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 clearly coming out. This is this is front of mind. I can see where this is happening. So So I
2: I was a history major. Let me be clear, so somebody doesn't listen to this and catch me on it. But what I focused on was the medieval period, and I'm particularly fascinated by just medieval and ancient warfare. I found it really fascinating because those that's really kind of uh, analogous to pursuing litigation if you think about it, because At that time, you know, you have to evaluate risk of campaigns and costs and come up with treaties, which, you know, for us, you know, in the bankruptcy world and and in general litigation, you think of as settlements, you know, trying to put the pieces together to make a deal. And so just so we're clear, I was a history major. (laughs) <laughs> not a, not a medieval history. Medieval
1: warfare sounds cooler though than saying just plain old history. Medieval warfare is awesome. I mean, I think, I think, I think it's really fun. So, so Robert, what about you? What what got you interested in bankruptcy? And I'll tell you, for me right now, after listening to you two, I want to go study medieval warfare. Robert, what what made you get interested in in bankruptcy?
3: Uh, a few things. Uh, bankruptcy allows you to do both litigation and transactional work. Because when I was in law school and you would uh, go interview at a law firm, they said, what do you want to do, litigation or do you want to do transactional? And I would say, I want to do both. And they would say, well, you can't, because if you're doing transactional work, you have to be available to the client. If you're doing litigation, you have to be secluded from all other clients You can focus (laughs) on the litigation. Similar, I had a law professor for bankruptcy at at Ohio State who uh, liked me and got me an externship with a, a federal bankruptcy judge in Columbus, Ohio. And then from there, I went to uh, a clerk for uh, the largest bankruptcy practitioner, consumer practitioner in Columbus, Ohio. So then that that just became uh, my path to coming to San Antonio and opening up my own practice here.
1: When I was in law school, right, one of my big fears about ever touching bankruptcy practice, and I never said it out loud, but this was always something that used to be in the back of my head. If I'm a bankruptcy lawyer and if I'm representing bankruptcy debtors, how am i going to get paid how am i going to make a living doing this but obviously looking at the both of you you've got your lights on and you you guys are you guys are well dressed and it looks like you guys are doing really well so obviously there's a way to get paid being a bankruptcy lawyer can you can you walk us through that how do y'all get how do bankruptcy lawyers make sure that that they get paid while still being able to serve their clients so robert let's start with you since since you're doing consumer bankruptcy work
3: uh, and that's a common question. You brought that up earlier, where everybody assumes that if you're filing bankruptcy, you're broke. Right? Uh, that's not the case. I mean, you could uh, be a really good income earner. Your company could be making good money. It's just not making enough money to pay either a particular creditor, could be the IRS, mm-hmm. attorney general for child support, the mortgage you fell behind on, at the pace that they want to be paid. Or with the interest rates. So if I have a client that has a hundred thousand in in credit cards and I say, well, we're gonna file chapter seven and they're gonna be eliminated, they will happily come pay me in a chapter seven before the case is filed. So I get paid up front. Mm. And then if it's a chapter thirteen and their payments are gonna go from ten thousand dollars a month to say two thousand dollars a month, they'll happily pay me something up front and I get paid out of the two thousand dollars a month that they're paying. So that's how I get paid.
1: And Catherine, what's been your experience with that? I know you're on the trustee side. And so it's probably different for you, but how do bankruptcy lawyers typically make sure their own lights stay on through the process?
2: Robert hit the nail on the head. I used to do mostly debtor work uh, and I did consumer and, and business cases. So uh, you need to evaluate the case and get you know, a retainer get paid up front. Uh, uh-huh. If it's a, a reorganization like a 13 or an 11, typically there's some provision for payment of your fees uh, in the plan as well. In bankruptcy, generally, attorney's fees for professionals that are employed by the estate need to be approved by the court. So in Chapter 13, you know, there's special, depending on the division you're in, you know, fixed fee agreements that are set in those divisions that the attorneys have to work with and, uh, you know, places that they have to get paid in the plan. In Chapter 11s and Chapter 7s, if you are a lawyer working for the debtor, or the estate, you have to be employed, you know, and you have to be, have your fees approved generally. Most chapter seven attorneys, as Robert said, you get paid up front. And so that's how you would be paid. Now, as a trustee, my compensation works differently. I get paid on a percentage scale and it's set out in section 326 of the bankruptcy code based on the amount that I actually disperse to creditors. Okay, so if I collect one hundred thousand dollars, and there's one hundred thousand dollars of creditors against the estate, I pay those claims out in accordance with the order and priority that's set out in the bankruptcy code, and then I get paid my, you know, sliding scale percentage, under three twenty six oh, wow. based on okay. what's dispersed. If I hire a lawyer in that case, uh, so a lot of lawyers will actually work for trustees, and say, okay, you know, I'll go pursue this litigation you know, for the estate, Mm -hmm. that lawyer has to have their, you know, employment approved and any fees approved, you know, any settlement or resolution of that claim approved by the court. And then they can get paid in accordance with whatever agreement is approved by
1: the court. So just to be clear on that one, what you're talking about is where the bankruptcy estate, the debtor might have a claim that they might have a legal claim against a third party. And then you're hiring a lawyer to go pursue that claim, see what can be collected to then add back to the bankruptcy estate.
2: That's correct. So
1: I'm correct about that's the first time. I, I'm glad this is being recorded. I'm gonna I'm gonna tell my wife, look, honey, I was right about something. So that that's how it works.
2: Right. So another section of the bankruptcy code that is aside from if you're gonna read no other section of the bankruptcy code as, as a non-bankruptcy lawyer, read 362 and section five forty-one of the bankruptcy code because 541 defines what is property of the estate. And when a debtor files bankruptcy, that includes all all their assets, including, as you mentioned, Rocky, intangible assets like causes of action. Okay, Debtors, and Uh Robert, I'm Uh sure, can go into this in more detail, can exempt or protect certain types of assets depending on the exemption scheme that they select. But generally, causes of action would come into the estate and I, as trustee, would be able to hire a professional to go pursue that, you know, and bring that
3: those funds into the estate. And Catherine, you also have uh, causes of action as a trustee that just can be pursued by the trustee in a chapter seven. The clawback provisions, the fraudulent transfer preferences uh, and, and that type of uh, litigation. Uh, you'll normally hire another attorney to do that. Correct? That's
2: correct. I have. As you noted, Robert, the Chapter 5 causes of action. So if you look at sections like 547, 548, 549 of, of the bankruptcy code, that lays out certain um, 544 abilities for me as a trustee to claw back certain transfers that the debtor may have made in the 4, 2, 1, or 90-day period before the bankruptcy was filed. And so if you're representing a creditor and you get a demand letter from me or one of my attorneys saying, hey, your client got this money uh-huh, you know, prior uh-huh. to bankruptcy filing, it's actually a preference, you need to give the money back. You know, that's where a, a lot of people can come into contact with the bankruptcy system as well.
1: Huh. One question that kind of pops up through this conversation is, and it's, it's a word lawyers hate to have to really think too deeply about except for 3 hours out of every year and that's ethics right cuz just just sitting as an outsider listening to this it sounds like the bankruptcy code could possibly be used in even if it's not unethical maybe in an improper way where somebody might use it to try to gain some kind of leverage or advantage on their creditors just to try to maybe get more more favorable payment terms or something like that and so you know can you talk for a minute about maybe ethical considerations that bankruptcy lawyers and non-bankruptcy lawyers need to be aware of and how clients might be abusing the bankruptcy process and how to avoid that. So, Catherine, let's maybe start with you on that one.
2: So there are several provisions of the bankruptcy code that deal with the good faith requirement that debtors have to have when they file the case, when they file their plans, And if it's a reorganization bankruptcy. Debtors have a lot of different requirements that they have to meet under the code, you can look at Section 521 of the code. It lays out all of the, the requirements that debtors have to meet uh, in terms of filing their schedules, being truthful and accurate. Debtors have to attend mm-hmm. a 341 meeting uh, that Robert noted that trustees preside over. Uh, there's also another party that we haven't talked about really yet in, in bankruptcy cases, and they're in the United States Trustee's Office, and they're an arm of the Department of Justice mm-hmm. And they are separate and apart from a private, you know, panel trustee that may be appointed sure. in a case, and it's their responsibility to oversee the case to make sure the debtors are complying with their requirements under the code, and everybody is, you know, meeting their obligations under the bankruptcy code. So, debtors can face severe penalties if they don't meet those requirements, such as losing their discharge. So, it, there are mechanisms built into the code for dismissal, conversion to another chapter if debtors don't meet their obligations.
1: And Robert, do you have anything to add to that on the, on the ethical side?
3: Yeah. So um, there's two parts of the ethical side. So when we file bankruptcy, we're normally trying to renegotiate the contract that we had with the creditors. Sure. So sure. with the unsecured credit, we may not be paying them anything, but that's legal, mm-hmm. absent fraud. So if I go borrow a bunch of money and then I know I'm going to file bankruptcy and I file bankruptcy. Well, that creditor can protect themselves by uh, filing an adversary in the bankruptcy case and saying, I don't want my particular claim to be discharged because he committed fraud, larceny, mm-hmm. fiduciary fraud, and other types of fraud. Um, also, they could try to look through the debtor schedules. And if the, the debtor is lying to the court, because these are sworn statements, try to get the debtor's entire discharge denied so they don't get to wipe out any debts.
1: We could keep talking about ethics because this sounds very interesting, but we did promise that we would talk a bit about some of the hidden tools in the bankruptcy code that maybe muggles like me don't know about. So, Robert, let's start with you on this question. For folks like me that don't touch bankruptcy a whole heck of a lot, when do you think we need to consider bringing in or maybe referring a matter to a bankruptcy lawyer? When does that point happen for those of us that are on that side?
3: Well, it would be like, say, for instance, if you're representing a client in a particular uh, cause of action, mm-hmm. litigation, and you think your client is going to either spend more money litigating than what they're going to get or they're going to lose. And yeah. absent some kind of fraud, you may have them at that point go talk to a bankruptcy attorney and say, hey, talk to a bankruptcy attorney. I get this very commonly. A case is referred to me by other attorneys and the client comes in and says, my attorney who's representing me has been representing me for a couple of years in this litigation said... It's better for me to just go talk to a bankruptcy attorney and contemplate whether I qualify to either file a Chapter Seven and eliminate this debt because I haven't committed any kind of fraud. There's no allegation of fraud, or pay them what I can in a say five year, three year Chapter Thirteen, and you know uh, there'll be light at the end of the tunnel.
1: Do you think that would also be useful if you're on the creditor side? You know, if if you've got so you know what what I'm anticipating is you've got a creditor who doesn't want to accept a payment term. And then they're afraid that this might go into bankruptcy. They want to know what their rights are. Is that a is, is that also a time when you've had folks maybe send send the creditor to you to get some consultation on what their rights are?
3: I normally don't represent creditors. I will answer their questions and then I'll refer them to, an, to friends of mine because my friends are creditors' attorneys. Sure. And that's one thing I like about bankruptcy because there's no real animosity between the attorneys because <laughs> you know the, we're just dealing with banks and 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 uh, individuals. Two things to think about that. One thing that a lot of uh, creditors attorneys overlook could be if they're not familiar with bankruptcy is that there is a way to put somebody in bankruptcy a Chapter 7 involuntarily. So if they have a lot of non-exempt assets and you're worried about them dissipating those assets, you may you, you have to get another creditor to, to join you. Uh, but usually if they're like suppliers or something, you'll know who those other creditors are and you'll put them into a bankruptcy. Hmm. And I, I saw that in a case, I didn't represent them But they put the husband in bankruptcy and they had like a one point five million dollar home in Austin, which is probably worth a lot more now because is years ago. And they were able to sell that homestead because the the debtor hadn't owned it for over three and a half years and therefore was only able to exempt like one hundred and sixty thousand of equity, despite the fact that the wife didn't file bankruptcy. So they were able to use an involuntary bankruptcy to collect money from the debtor through the bankruptcy process.
1: Wow. Okay. Again, that's something I I would not have thought of. So <laughs> I'm 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 learning something. So, Catherine, how about from your perspective? What are when are the times when when non bankruptcy lawyers should be kind of thinking about bringing the bankruptcy side in?
2: I think any time you're dealing with a bankruptcy that has been filed or a potential bankruptcy, you should talk to a bankruptcy lawyer. And I'm going to point to a couple of provisions of the code that. I think, are really important. 362K is the provision that provides an individual that is sustains actual or other damages from a willful violation of the stay, can be entitled to, to damages, is something that, you know, somebody that has a client that maybe keeps going after a debtor, they can subject themselves to that and, and to getting hauled into bankruptcy court. So you need to be very mindful of that. Anytime the bankruptcy is filed, there's a stay in place and there's mechanisms that a creditor can go through to try and lift that stay. But there's very specific local rules on those motions and you need to be very careful about how you proceed once a bankruptcy is filed. So I would say that. Robert brought up something really important, which is, are these specific provisions of 522, which is lays out the exemptions. So, there's 522Q that provides certain limits to what a a debtor can exempt an equity from their residence under certain circumstances involving fraud and and so you if you have a, a client that um, is a creditor that believes that there may be some uh, fraud or other issues going on you know really take a look at those uh, 522 uh, exceptions, um, that limit the amount of equity that a debtor can have in their homestead under certain circumstances.
1: Yeah. Cause I, I guess the homestead rules got, got amended some years ago. So now it's not just a blanket exemption. There's, there's ways to, to limit that to some degree. Is that, am I remembering that right?
3: Yes. Uh, so it limits state exemptions for states like Texas and where our homestead is defined 10 acres in the city. 100 acres rural, or if you're married, 200 acres rural, they amended the bankruptcy code back October uh, October of 2005, and they put provisions to limit that. Like if I haven't owned the home for over three and a half years, I'm limited to an amount that's set out in the bankruptcy code that gets adjusted every so many years for inflation. So that was the example from the house in, in Austin. They hadn't owned it for over three and a half years. So they were limited to like 160,000 versus Texas exemptions would have said, you're limited only by acreage. Uh, So they were able to use that provision to be able to sell the homestead, the debtor's homestead.
1: This kind of brings us maybe to our to our final topic, if you will, and that is about the ways in which the bankruptcy code or the bankruptcy courts can be used strategically. You know, in even in a non-bankruptcy type of scenario, even where you've got a potential debtor that's not in immediate financial peril. You know, you guys have alluded to a couple of them. One is forcing somebody into a Chapter Seven you know, when you're trying to protect a certain asset and make sure it doesn't go away. So forcing somebody that's, that, that's kind of, I think a, a nugget that a lot of us may not know exists. And so I, I'm, I'm glad we had that part of the conversation.
3: Are there other sort of strategic gems?
1: Well, I have one offhand because I'm
3: um, preparing for this. It's judicial estoppel and then also standing. And that's something that I've seen throughout my practice where non-bankruptcy attorneys get that one mixed up or just completely overlook it. So if you're representing a claimant, uh, a litigant, uh, and you're the, the plaintiff's attorney, you should always ask them, have you ever filed bankruptcy before? Huh. Or okay. if you file bankruptcy during this litigation, let me know before you file. Hmm. Because in the bankruptcy uh, scenario, say for instance, this person suing for asbestos poisoning, that hmm. uh, that poisoning it uh, takes years and years before it turns into if it's going to turn into cancer. Mm-hmm. So if this person filed bankruptcy say 5 years ago a chapter 7 and the case is done and now they're claiming against uh somebody uh, against an insurance company or or a particular Johnson and Johnson or anybody the attorney for the other side could say well this Claim is judicially stopped because they didn't list it in their bankruptcy, and obviously the uh, you as their lawyer would would say, well, they didn't know about it. They back didn't then. know, right? But like any sworn statement, a deposition, anything else, you have a duty to correct it. So the, the appropriate measure would have been to go back, reopen the bankruptcy case, and get a determination from the bankruptcy court that that asset is not property of the bankruptcy estate, because you would argue if you're representing the claimant. The claim or the, the cause of action did not arise until my client got sick because if my client had never gotten sick, they never would have been able to, 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 to make this claim. Mm-hmm. But if you just leave it there, you could go, if you have a contingent fee, spend a whole bunch of time on this case, and then boom, judicial estoppel. Uh, it's a you know get out of jail free card for the other side, and you just spent years litigating this and just wasted your time. And wow. your client could sue you for not having them ask them the perfect questions like, did you ever right. file bankruptcy before? If you file <laughs> bankruptcy, notify me so you get a double whammy: you lose your fees and you get sued by the by your client.
1: So it sounds like that needs to be part of the intake process. Maybe even in an engagement letter, asking a client to swear and affirm and verify that there was no bankruptcy or listing any bankruptcies that may have taken place at an earlier time,
3: or they're going to take place during the case because in a Chapter Seven, it's just about what you own at the date of filing or prior to that. Sure. In a Chapter Thirteen it's anything that you acquired during the case. So I've had that happen where they go and they talk to somebody, they have a car accident, semi-truck hits them, whatever, and the personal injury attorney tells them, well, you don't have to list this one because this didn't happen until after you filed your Chapter 13. So it's not property of the estate under 541. Chapter 13 also has its own provision that will include any type of property that's listed on 541 that's acquired during the case. So there, that attorney gave them Bad advice, and which results in the client losing their money and the attorney losing their fees and potentially getting sued.
1: Fascinating stuff. Okay, Catherine, what are some strategic issues that non non bankruptcy practitioners need to know about so that you know we can look out for them? That was that was great advice, Robert. Thank you.
2: Robert really hit the nail on the head with the estoppel issues. Uh, I run into that quite a bit, as particularly as a trustee. That's really important. I think beyond just asking about it, you, you need to have a procedure in your office where you actually do PACER searches on people that allows yeah. you to search mm-hmm. the online database using your client's, you know, social security number. In the case of an individual, you can search by their name. And that way you're not yeah. just relying mm-hmm. on what they're telling you. You actually have a way to, to verify that. So bankruptcy courts are courts of equity, right? And you hear, you hear that mm-hmm. a lot if mm-hmm. you go into bankruptcy court. One thing in terms of strategic use of bankruptcy, I see some creditors complain, well, the case should be dismissed because, you know, of X, Y, Z reason. There are specific statutes in the bankruptcy code that deal with dismissal. Generally, and Robert can probably chime in on this, if there's a colorable reason for a debtor to be in bankruptcy, for them to be able to either reorganize or for them to have Debts that exceed their assets and are, you know, a way for their non-exempt property to pay their debts through bankruptcy. The court's going to let that case go forward. And so the most important thing that non bankruptcy lawyers should be looking at, if they're dealing with somebody that's sort of the outside looking into the bankruptcy system, is, how is their client going to be treated in the priority scheme? Where do they fall? Because that's uh-huh. where you know. Where the leverage is, and you have to have some idea of who the other players are in the case. Because if there's a secured creditor that swamps most of the assets, well, you know, there there may not be a lot mm-hmm. left. So that's you, you yeah. have to have an understanding not just of where your client stands, but where the other creditors stand too.
1: So the lesson for all of us, all of you non-bankruptcy lawyers out there, the lesson is: become friends with a bankruptcy lawyer, get to know them, take them to lunch, and Know when to call them. So, you know, Catherine Curtis, Robert Van Hemelrich, we are we are out of time for this episode. We could actually keep talking about this. This was this was fascinating. Thank you both so much for taking the time to join us and for and for walking us through the bankruptcy process. This is this is a first for our podcast, and and I know it won't be the last. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. And of course, I want to thank you for tuning in and I want to encourage you to stay safe and continue to be well. If you like what you heard today, please rate and review us in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Until next time, remember, life's a journey, folks. I'm Rocky Deer, signing off for now.
0: If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Go to TexasBar.com podcasts. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts and RSS. Find both the State Bar of Texas and Legal Talk Network on Twitter,